Hey, this is Sean Ryan, and you are watching the TV Writer Podcast. My name is Greg Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 101, for Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. Well, today I have an interview with somebody who probably needs no introduction, and that is Sean Ryan, who has created or co-created so many series, including The Shield, Chicago Code, Last Resort, Timeless, and his current series, series SWAT. And he's got a lot of great stories to tell, including, and I know there's going to be a lot of people interested in this, he does talk legitimately about future prospects for Timeless. This episode is sponsored by Pilar Alessandra of OnThePage.tv. Be sure to check out all the resources and classes on her site. And she also offers one-on-one -on -one coaching via Zoom. TV Writer Podcast viewers can get 10% off on any of her services. Just reach out to Pilar directly and tell her I sent you. If you want to help me to continue to bring these weekly episodes to you, please consider becoming a patron or sponsor for as little as 25 cents per episode. And there are reward levels for different amounts. Visit tvwriterpodcast.com support for details. You're going to love the interview. Let's roll. Well, I'm so excited to be here with veteran show creator and showrunner Sean Ryan, who has created or co-created a number of series, including The Shield, The Chicago Code, Last Resort, Timeless, and his current series, SWAT. How are you doing, Sean? I'm very well, Gray. Thank you for uh, joining me virtually today during this pandemic and uh, talking writing. Happy to be here. Well, I know that this, this episode is going to be especially exciting because... It's really hard to get a TV show off the ground. There's thousands of pitches that are done every year um, to the to the networks, and very few get shot. Very f even fewer get to series. And you've been able to create or co-create quite a few shows. And I hope that the the wisdom that you have to share will help people as they are writing their own pilots and as they're um, trying to sell their own projects. Uh, yeah, that's it's a very competitive industry. Um, I've been fortunate that I've had some pitches uh, that have made its way all the way through and got on the air and stayed on the air. Um, I've I've had my share of uh, tragedies too, of mm -hmm. projects that I loved that I was unable to get launched either at script stage or at pilot stage. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, uh, sometimes we remember our losses more than we treasure our wins. And so. Mm -hmm. uh, Especially as writers. Yeah, so I still have little sore spots uh, in me, little wounds from uh, things that I felt super passionate about that I couldn't get. But uh, but no, I've been very, uh, very fortunate uh, to work with great people and to get you know a number of TV shows on the air, including some that I didn't create, but I supervised things like Mad Dogs, which Chris Cole created, The Unit, which David Mamet created. Um, and so I enjoy doing that as well sometimes, you know, having partners who have a vision for something that I can help with. Very, very cool. You know, speaking about times that things don't happen the way you plan, where are you at with the virus? How, how has that affected you? Well, we're not friends. <laughs> <laughs> and the virus has not been kind to, uh, to me or to the world. Uh, but I was telling someone, um, you almost feel guilty and bad saying this, but uh, I would say I and my job are uh, more suited for this situation than, mm. than most people. You know, I'm used to spending a lot of time isolated and writing and 
you know, on my laptop dealing with a dozen different things, you know, via mm. email coming through. Uh, it's been a lot harder on my wife and my kids. I have a daughter who had to return home from college and oh, wow. she was she was having a great time in college um, in, in New York State. And, you know, so she's not thrilled that she's separated from her friends and her new sorority and, you know, and, and being able to do classes in person. I have a son who's in high school, you know, who this is a real adjustment for him. And mm. um, it's hard. So so it, for me personally, it's been OK. Professionally, it's been OK. Um, you know, I'm fortunate we have a nice house and I'm in a guest guest house that we built a while ago right now. I can, you know, get some isolation and some privacy. We're, mm. we're, we're more fortunate than most to have a nice place to sort of hang out in. But emotionally, it's been hard on a family level. And, you know, and so I've tried to be a support system, uh, you know, for my family in that regard. It's hard, you know, and, yeah. and I'm totally aware that it's hard on a lot of people. And I have a couple of cousins, uh, in Rockford, Illinois, where I'm from, who um, who are you know medical assistants and nurses, and I worry a lot about them and how you know they're doing in in all this. Yeah, it's certainly been very humbling. Yeah, it really is. Um, I mean, the word game changer gets thrown around around a lot, but this is a game changer in terms of really reevaluating life and priorities and. Mm. Um, and what's important and, and, and what's not. And, um, uh, and I've just been trying to do my part uh, and, you know, not get infected and not infect others and, you know, do my biweekly grocery shop with, uh, with mask and gloves and, yeah. you know, uh, try to research, like, what grocery store is the best one to go to at what times so as to not – you know, um, be amongst a crowd if possible. And, uh, you know, uh, just trying to do our part. Mm. And then, um, and then SWAT, you know, we, we ended up filming 21 out of our planned 22 episodes, but for the last, I mean, I think this is week five maybe of quarantine for me mm. and most people. Um, but those five weeks have been filled with a lot of post-production work, you know, cuts coming in, you know, I think we locked picture on at least two and maybe three, three episodes during this quarantine. So, you know, I download, you know, the, the director's cut and, 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 and then producer cuts and give notes via email. And there's always sort of sound notes and there's VFX things. So in some ways it's been business as usual, although that's running out. We only have two more new episodes to air. And by the time people see this, the episodes will have already aired. Um, but you know, uh, it's crazy. It's crazy to wake up and think, oh, I can't really go out. I can't go to my favorite restaurant. You know, the most you might be able to do is take the dog for a walk around the block. It's, mm. uh, it's weird. Yeah. Well, you, you talked a little bit about uh, growing up in Illinois. I wanted to mention you you had a really auspicious beginning. Um, talk about winning the Norman Lear Playwriting Award and what that did for your career. Yeah, they, they, it was called something different by the time um, I won it. It was at that point called like the Sony Pictures Television Comedy Playwright Award, but it had historically been the Norman Lear Award. Um, it was a real big boost at the start, and then I kind of squandered it. <laughs> and then had to go through, you know, all the paying my dues that, that most everyone does in this town. But I had written um, 
I'd started writing plays in college. Before college, I'd never written anything creatively. You know, I'd only written essays for English classes and things like that, and always hated right. I, I hated writing academic papers. Was yeah. not a fan of that. Um, but I had dabbled in theater in high school, um, both at my school and then I was actually in a um, professional production of On Golden Pond, playing Billy the kid. The, the kid that's in that, if you ever saw the movie or mm-hmm. if you ever seen the play. And I did like 35 performances of that at the, at the one professional theater in Rockford, Illinois. And so I'd yeah. always been interested in theater. And in college, I started taking some theater classes. And uh, one of the things I had to do for one of them was to write a five-minute scene and have other kids from the class act in them. And, and, um, and I wrote my five-minute scene, and I thought that I would be the only person – it was filled with like inside jokes between me and my best friends at college. I didn't think anyone would get it. Mm-hmm. And as leaving the class that day, <clears throat> it was the last class of my freshman year, getting ready to go back home to Illinois. The professor called me back and said, hey, your scene was really good. I think you have a talent for this. And I'm teaching a playwriting class next year, and I really think you should take it. And mm-hmm. that moment really changed my life. And so I wrote a play, and he produced that play along with a few others from that class. And then I changed my major, and so for my thesis project, I wrote a full-length play, and a different theater professor liked it, and he wanted to produce it as part of the official theater department program, which he did. And he pestered me into entering it into these various competitions, which you know I, I thought there was no chance, and it did what it and, and so part of that award was to bring me out to Los Angeles and let me spend two weeks observing in the writer's room of one of um, Columbia Picture, then now Sony, um, one of their shows. That show wow. turned out to be my dad's, the Paul Reiser, Greg Evigan, um, Giovanni Rabisi, a young Giovanni Rabisi was in that show. Um, and, uh, and so I just got to observe. Uh, and then I ended up, I don't know what gave me the balls to do this. Um, but I, when the two weeks was over, uh, Bob Meyer, who was running that show, I said, Hey, I know you're still a couple episodes shy of things. Would it be okay if I came in and pitched you some ideas like in a week? And, and for some reason he said yes. And a week wow. later I came in and I pitched some ideas and there was one that he just really liked the one sentence nugget. He, mm. he didn't like what I had fleshed out. <laughs> <laughs> but he liked this nugget and, and he just started ripping and well you could do this you could do that you could do this and we spent like 20 minutes and really he kind of broke it hmm. um but it's like yeah yeah we should do that and the next thing i knew they were um they were handing that idea off to two of their staff writers on the show and like literally three weeks later they were filming it wow. and and um and so i thought well i was 23 years old at the time in 1990 and I thought, well, I've made it. Hollywood has discovered <laughs> the immense talent that is Sean Ryan. And now I will just sort of sit here and field offers from agents and studios, and I'll just see where this takes me. And, and sitting on my ass waiting for Hollywood to, to kiss my ass <laughs> it did not work, as it uh-huh. turned out. That was not a successful uh, approach to the business. Uh-huh. And it took me a year, and it took – you know, me running out of the money that I had made selling the story to them um, and having to, like, uh, you know, go get day jobs outside the industry to support myself to make me realize, oh, I guess this isn't going to be so easy. Mm-hmm. I guess this isn't um, – this is something I'm actually going to have to work hard for. And so it really changed my perspective on things, and it really 
uh, forced me to, to, to up my work ethic, to really start, you know, treating this as a craft and a profession that I had to take super seriously. Because I always, uh, I was fortunate. I had talent as a writer from the very first thing I wrote. Um, I was a clever writer, mm. but I wasn't a good deep writer. And, and, and that's what I had to discover was my clever writing got me some attention early on. But you have to be more than just a clever writer to, to really sort of work in this town. And so I had to grow up. I had to become an adult. I had to get life experience. I had, you know, I banged out 16, 17 different spec scripts wow. during that like four, four and a half year period between selling the story and then my next paying gig. And, um, and I just, you know, worked hard and did what most people who succeed in this business do. Um, I just worked on my craft. I worked hard. Yeah. Um, but I also got lucky in many ways. And I, I always try to, to say that when people, you know, when I have students or young people asking about breaking in, I always say that there, there are three factors that determine whether you're going to be a success in this town. And unfortunately, mm. you can only control one. Um, there's luck, which you can't control, which I certainly have my fair share of. <clears throat> there's talent, which you really can't control. You might be able to nudge it up a little bit you know, by working your craft and learning. And then there's determination and hard work. And that is the one that you can control. Hmm. And so I always say, focus on that. And because I, in my experience, the people who get lucky are usually the ones that have worked hard and have determination. Hmm. So, so yeah, it was a big break for me to win this award. It was a pretty cool thing to be able to say that I'd won this award. Um, within a month of being out here, the award meant nothing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. yeah. And, and, you know, so, but, but the good part was it did bring me out here. I'd never been to Los Angeles. Hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. I didn't know anyone in Los Angeles. I didn't, I, that's not entirely, there was one unemployed actor I knew who I'd met at a playwrights retreat, uh, who he had just moved out like six months previously. That was hmm. Jay Karn who played Dutch in the shield. Um, he was the one person I knew. And so the award gave me the courage to come out here because it literally mm. brought me out here, put me up in a hotel for the first two weeks um, and got me used to L.A. so that I could say, OK, I'm going to stay here. I don't know if I would have had the guts to, to, to just sort of move here on my own and say I, I want to be a writer. So that's what that award did for me. It got me out here. It got my foot in the door. And then it mm. took another four, four and a half years before I started to make money as a writer and another five you know, so I moved here in 1990 and I started in the latter part of like 1995, early part of 1996. That's when I started to be able to support myself as a writer. So wow. it, took, it took a while. And so what was your first staff gig? Was that Nash Bridges? It was. I, I got some freelance work like I had. Um, there was a <clears throat> there was a kids animated show called Life with Louie that was based on Louie Anderson's career and Louie did the it was based on his childhood and he did a voice and it was a really really good show if you can find it mm. uh, it's a really good show for kids to watch it's sort of timeless um, and so I got hired to do a freelance episode of that show and they really liked what I did and they hired me to do two other episodes so I did that there were a couple of pilot um, ideas I pitched that people paid me to write that that never got made, but you know, but I earned a living. And then Nash Bridges was my first staff job. It was interesting because I <clears throat> I'd sort of broken through, and now I had a couple of spec scripts that people really liked, and I'd been trying to staff for the previous three, four, five years and was unsuccessful. 
And I was kind of going back and forth. Did I want to be a comedy writer? Did I want to be a drama writer? Mm. And I was writing spec scripts in both genres. Oh, I would write I would write a spec Seinfeld and then write a spec NYPD Blue. Um, and so I was going on meetings for both comedies and dramas. And ultimately what happened was um, I had two meetings in the same week that both felt very serious. Um, one was I met with Joss Whedon for Buffy the Vampire Slayer oh, wow. season two. And then I met uh, Carlton Cuse and John Worth for, for Nash Bridges season three. Um, and I had sort of watched a lot of episodes of both shows, and they were very different shows, obviously. Uh, and ultimately, Joss decided not to hire me on Buffy, and I was sort of devastated. But then a day or two later, an offer came uh, from Nash. And so, uh, yeah, May that would have been May of 1997. So I moved out here in 1990, and in May of 1997, I got my first staff job. Wow. Well, I think it's good for people to know, because... Uh, I think there's definitely this illusion for a lot of people that um, when you break in, that suddenly it's smooth sailing. And I don't know anybody I talk to that that's true for. It's like the overnight success that takes 10 years is what I hear from most yeah. people. Yeah. And listen, it was the best thing in the world that could have happened to me to have this struggle. Um, I really needed to have those years um, of struggle mm -hmm. where I realized that I had to become a better writer, mm. that, that what I was doing just wasn't good enough to get hired, and which is frustrating because you watch TV, and especially back then, because TV, I think, has really improved as a genre, but back then you'd watch, and there was a lot of bad TV, mm -hmm. and you would just be, oh, my God, how can I not get hired? <laughs> I'm Shows and then, and but then you'd, you'd find out afterwards, well, you know, maybe something good was written, and maybe there are problems with the actors, or or maybe they had production issues, or maybe there were budget, budget issues. And but you would just feel like, oh my god, I've got, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to get better, I've got to get better. And, and without that struggle, I don't think I would have achieved the things that I ended up achieving. And I don't think, and believe me, I don't think I'm the perfect writer, and I. Still to this day, I'm looking for ways to improve as a writer. Um, but I wouldn't be the writer I am without those years of struggle. And I look back and I'm extraordinarily grateful that, you know, that I didn't start, um, you know, having success in Hollywood and being able to start making some money um, until, you know, I was close to 30 mm. um, when I was ready for it. 23 would have, you know, to come, to come here and just sort of have – instant acceptance in the industry uh, i don't know that i would have learned the right lessons in that regard and so i'm, I'm ultimately very very happy with how it turned out for me mm -hmm. and i wouldn't change anything I, I wouldn't give away those times um in some ways it's amongst the happiest times of my life i enjoyed the struggle i embraced mm -hmm. it i said i'm chasing a dream i'm chasing something i want to do i'm not going to business school i'm not you know doing a job that's going to sort of suck my soul um, and this is a sacrifice I have to make to pursue it. And and I was ultimately really glad about making that sacrifice. Very cool. Very cool. And so you were on Nash Bridges with Carlton Cuse. Um, was that sort of your training ground? Yeah. I always, And once again, this is where luck goes into it, right? I, I wanted that Buffy the Vampire Slayer job. Mm. I really dug that show. And I could tell, you know, they'd only done one season at that point. 
And the luckiest thing that happened to me was Joss not hiring me for that show. Mm. Because after Nash, I went to work for him on Angel. And I was like, oh, man, if I didn't have the three years of Nash, I don't know that I would survive here. Mm. I don't know I would do okay. And I still struggled a little bit. So if I had been hired on Buffy, I don't think I would have – I don't think I would have survived. I don't think I would have succeeded. So, but I did three seasons on Nash. Um, Carlton and John Worth are the consummate pros. Mm. They believed in a very collaborative writer's room that ultimately um, was just a great story engine lesson for me. There were only six of us, and Carlton had a lot of showrunner responsibilities. So there were a lot of times that he wasn't in the room, which meant that there were a lot of times there were only five of us in the room. And we had to break anywhere between 22 and 24 episodes a season. Wow. Uh, we would film Nash in seven business days, unlike the eight business days that is pretty standard now, which meant that we had to break a new episode every seven business days. Wow. Uh, and so, uh, so it became – and there was a mixture of drama and comedy – and they were all smart. And, and Carlton and John both cared about being a mentor. Not everyone in this business, you know, cares about that. They mm. they look at it like a business. I've hired you to be a professional writer. Be a professional writer. You know, learn on your own time. But but John was always full of sort of life lessons and business lessons. I never forget him just going up to the whiteboard in the room one day, and he just wrote down the question, um, "What's a secret?" Um, to getting rich in Hollywood, question mark. And he just let us look at that for a second. And they just wrote down, don't get divorced. <laughs> and, and I always remember that. Uh, and I'm happy to say that this week, my wife and I will be celebrating our 22nd wedding anniversary. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. And um, and so, yeah, there were they were both really good about explaining what worked in my scripts, what didn't work in my scripts. Um and because uh, I, for the first year and a half of that show, until Glenn Mazzara was brought on, um, I was the youngest, you know, lowest uh, level writer on that show. Um, and and so I learned a lot. But I also one of the things I learned is that you have to find your niche, even if you're going to be the lowest level writer. What is the thing that you will do? that will make you indispensable on the show mm. because it only took me like a week, week and a half of being on that show to realize, well, this is great on the show, but man, my options only for 20 weeks. Like how am I, <laughs> how am I going to make sure they pick up that option? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so what I realized was that they had writers on staff who were senior to me, people like Reed Steiner and Jed Seidel um, and certainly Carlton and John who really understood tonally how to write the show and that I was never going to write the perfect Nash Bridges script, that it would always be polished by Carlton or John or Reed or Jed. Um, but what I could do was I could really generate story. And I was really, I got good in the room of, of sort of trying to be the guy who could unlock unlock a story problem, make a suggestion that was something they hadn't heard of before that they sort of liked, but was in the zone. And so that's, that's where I spent the bulk of my time was in the writer's room, 10 a.m. till 7 p.m., Monday through Friday, breaking a new episode along with this group. And, and, and I, 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 I would like to say, I, I don't think it's bragging to say, I got to be very valuable in that regard for mm -hmm. them. 
And that was the reason why, you know, they kept picking up my options and I spent three years working on that show. When my contract was up, they asked me to come back. Um, <clears throat> but I felt that I'd kind of learned everything I had learned from that show and found out that the person that Joss Whedon had hired instead of me on Buffy had flamed out pretty quickly. Uh-huh. Um, and that he, and that every time he called to sort of check about my availability, he was being told, well, Nash Bridges loves him and he's not available. Nash Bridges loves him. So he's not available. And so after three years, suddenly I was available. And, and I think I had become a little bit of the thing that he had lost three years ago. And so he brought me in for a meeting with uh, David Greenwald and Tim Minear on angel. Um, which was better for me because Angel's actually a, a show that was better suited for me and my sensibilities mm-hmm. than Buffy was <clears throat> because the sort of brooding male vampire was something I could plug into a little bit more than the teenage girl high schooler sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I chose to leave Nash um, for Angel, um, which was the right decision for me, although it was painful because I really loved the guys at Nash. I was... Mm-hmm. I'm flattered that they wanted me back. Secretly, I thought, well, they're going to have a hard time, you know, replacing me and what I do, and and, and they're really going to miss me. And when I chose not to come back, they replaced me with Damon Lindelof. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. I fine. So, uh, so I always like the yeah. I I it, it's a good way of keeping myself in check. That the you know you, you think you're special, but there's always a Damon Lindelof ready to staff in your place (laughs) wow so when you created the shield you hadn't spent that much time in the room i mean you were three years on nash and was it one year on on angel it it wasn't even a full one on angel um i ended up being accredited producer for 19 of the 22 episodes because what happened was at the tail end of my uh nash bridges run and the beginning of my angel run i had written um a pilot script called the barn Hmm. that had come to shield um uh, sort of wrote it on spec for fox tv studios with no network attached and i just had the script floating out there um that predated and and so i was just working on angel and once again i'm like well how do i make sure that i get picked up for a second season you know because this is different i you know i took a chance uh i took less money to go to angel i took i didn't i took less than a full year guarantee i think they had um um like only a 13 episode guarantee and and then they have the option to pick me up for the rest of the season um, but I just felt like I could learn a whole new skill set there. Mm. Um, so uh, what happened was suddenly somebody gave that that barn script to the people at FX who, unbeknownst to me, were devising a whole new idea for a whole new network. They knew they had the money to make two pilots. They had picked one of the pilots they wanted to make, and they read the script and were interested in this. and went and met with them and, and they decided that they wanted my script to be the second one they made. And, and, but they would only do it if I was contractually free to make the pilot and to continue on series. And I was under option at angel. So I suddenly went from being like, how do I get picked up on this show to how <laughs> I get them to release me from this show? <laughs> wow. 
And I had to sit down with David Greenwald, and I just explained the situation to him, and he was extraordinarily generous. Um, he and his uh, former partner, John McNamara, had been in a similar situation um, when they created the show Profit, and John was on staff of Lois and Clark, and the studio had not let John off that show as oh, a writer on staff to go show run a show he had created. And the two of them... I believe had always kind of resented the fact that they wouldn't do that. And they always said, well, we would never do that to someone. Hmm. And so while he wasn't thrilled that he was losing, cause it was not a big staff and angel. Um, while he was not thrilled that he was losing me. Um, he, he was like, we're not, you know, we always said we wouldn't stop someone from doing that, doing that. And then we, they worked out a deal with my agent um, where I was, you know, they saved a little money. Essentially I was paid through, episode 19 and I wasn't paid for episodes 20, 21 and 22. So that, and my work was sort of done because episode 19 was the episode I had written. So they really need, so, so they saved some money and I got my freedom. And, and so it was almost a full season of angel. Um, I wrote or co-wrote five episodes Mm -hmm. of, of that show during those 19 that I worked on. And, and then my last day at angel was on a Friday and on the following Monday, I had a little um, uh, conference room at the Fox TV studios uh, offices that they let me sit in. And I started having meetings with line producers and everything. And I just started working on the shield pilot the following Monday. Wow. So you had just gotten to the producer level on angel and then all of a sudden you're you're shooting a pilot like that must have been a foreign territory. It was completely foreign, especially because Nash Bridges was a show that we wrote in Los Angeles, but we filmed in San Francisco. But because of the trickiness of Don Johnson as a, as a lead, you know, Don really, you know, um, wanted to be the guy in charge and he had had a huge success in television and he had a ton of clout and and i guess before my arrival on nash if writers ever went up to set you know don saw that as a little challenge to his authority and he would sort of make things uncomfortable for them and so as a result by the time i was on the show we never went to set all the time was spent in the writers just working on the things so i had zero experience with production after three years of nash one of the reasons why i took the job at angel was Angel filmed in Los Angeles, and 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 I could experience some of that. So I did have a little production experience on Angel. Um, I got a little time uh, in the editing room, observing a little bit of David Greenwald, but mostly observing Tim Minear. Um, I would make a couple suggestions that sometimes they would use. So so I just started getting a little bit of production and editing experience. So to suddenly show run the shield was a huge sea change for me. And, and, and it was humbling. And I had to admit, you know, the best thing I ever did was, was to be very open and honest and admit what I didn't know. Hmm. Um, so I hired an extraordinarily, uh, accomplished, uh, line producer and just said to him, when you see me going the wrong way, please tell me. <laughs> yeah. You know, so this was Scott Brazil. And um, and he was great. What I knew about The Shield was I knew that world. And I knew the characters. And I knew the stories I wanted to tell. And I had spent the last four years on very small staffs breaking a ton of stories. 
So it would have been somewhere in the high 80s, the number of episodes that I had helped craft um, on a story-breaking front. And so I knew I could do that, mm. and I knew I could do that well. And then the other stuff I was going to have to figure out along the way. Um, but I hired people who, um, especially with Scott, who could fill in the areas of my weaknesses. Mm. And I was humble enough to let them fill in those long enough for me to figure things out myself. Um, and I, years later when, you know, cause, because when I had my very first media FX, Kevin Riley, um, who was head of programming there, working underneath Peter Liguri, Kevin said, we want to make this pilot, but you know, we only want to do it if you can show run it and then lead the show if it goes to series. Hmm. Do you think you're up to that? Wow. And I, without flinching, said yes. But in my mind, I was not sure. <laughs> yeah. But in that moment, you have to say yes. Yeah. And, and, and then I worked hard to live up to that promise um, to him. And I asked him years later, I said, you know, usually in these cases with a young writer who has some experience but not a lot, they'll sort of pair him or her up with some experienced showrunner. I said, why did you not do that? And he said, all I knew was that I wanted the person who'd written that script to be the person making the decisions mm. about. Them. Now, I think there was another thing that he never truly admitted to me, and that was that of the two pilots they were making, I really think the other one was the one they thought was going to go to series okay. and not and not ours. Um, I've heard talk about that from people who worked at FX. I never heard that from Kevin and Peter. Um, but I think they thought the other one was going to be the one, <coughs> excuse me, that they were going to pick. And, and we were the sort of flyer mm. backstop. And then ultimately, I think, you know, humility aside, I think we made an undeniable pilot that when they looked, and I, and I ultimately saw the other pilot. It was called Dope, and it was written by Chris Brancato. Bert Salky produced it with him, and it was good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was not, it was not a disaster. It wasn't like they, you know, screwed it up. I think it was good. Um, but there was something about ours that I think they thought would, you know, define FX and, you know, was unlike other things on TV. And, and, and so I think that was another reason why he let me be in charge was, was I think they thought the other thing was going to be the thing that would go. Mm. So then when we made the pilot and they really loved it, it was good, and I had overseen that, well, then they decided not to bring someone in <laughs> overseas again. But, but, but it was a, you know, but it, we went back and forth and there were, you know, and I got lucky there. Once again, you'll, you'll hear me a number of times in this conversation talk about mm. in the road and moments where I got lucky. There were a couple of things that Kevin was pushing for in the first six, seven episodes, we agreed on a lot and they liked a lot of what we were doing. And then they would have notes that I liked and we would implement, but there were a couple of times where we were at odds. One was after the pilot, Kevin wanted to fire Walton Goggins and lose the character from the show. Um, and I understood why there was, he didn't have a lot to do in the pilot and he was kind of like a big personality, but we hadn't give him, hadn't given him the material to sort of embrace that. Mm. But I kind of know 
I'd gotten to know Walton during the pilot and I'd seen a short film that he had produced that ultimately won the Oscar for short film. And he was in, and I, and I, I learned what he was capable of and I saw where we could go with him. And essentially I pushed back on Kevin and I explained, you know, give me a couple of episodes with him. I think it's the wrong decision to fire him. I think, you know, there's really important stuff here. And we did, and we wrote him a big thing in episode two, and he was great in it. And we got the note back from the network, more Walton Goggins. <laughs> not only does it not fire him, but look to beef him up in the scripts. Wow. So so that decision helped in terms of earning currency from Kevin. And then there was an episode called Cherry Poppers um, that was a really sort of risky episode. The material was really kind of, you know, not even R-rated, I would say. It was almost pushing NC-17 rating kind of stuff. Mm. Um, not in terms of nudity, but just like in terms of sexual, in terms of content about um, the sort of sex trade world and underage girls and everything. And they had some problems with the script. And the notes that we got back from them were... Uh, I just disagreed with some of them and I sort of said why and and ultimately he said okay do it and then when that episode came in they really loved the cut and he was lovely enough and professional enough to just flat out come out to me and say hey I was wrong about my thoughts on the script this is great wow. and from and from that moment on um I I had earned I guess the trust with them so we would still have disagreements along the way and then they'd have, you know, they'd point out things that they thought could be improved. And usually they'd be right and, and we would improve them. But in those moments where it was like, well, we want A, I want B, neither of us can convince the other side. They would say, okay, well, we'll let you win then. Mm. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I know we could talk about The Shield for quite a while, but we do definitely do need to move on. Um, maybe what you can do for me is um, paint for me the signpost of the next few years. You created a number of series during that time. I mean, were there projects that you expected to go that didn't or expected not to go and did? Well, I, I always think they're going to go. So, <laughs> um, and it's always relief um, when they do, and it's always disappointment when they don't. Um you, you put your heart and soul in these things. I can't imagine doing that and assuming it's not going to go. Um, and I'm always angry and bitter and disappointed when they don't. Mm. Um, you know, David Mamet had directed an episode of The Shield um, in college. I, like many people of my era, you know, um, really revered David's playwriting and everything. Mm. Uh to get to know him in that process was so cool, you know, to come meet him for lunch and, you know, check out a little bit of his movie. And at lunch, he said, Hey, I've got this idea because there's this book and I'd like to turn a TV show. Would you want to do it with me? So that was a big moment for me when mm. a guy whose writing I admired so much, you know, wanted to do a project with me. And we turned that into the unit. Um, that went four seasons. Uh, I'm extraordinarily proud. It's one of the few TV shows that certainly had existed up till that time that investigated and sort of showed um, a real-life war, in this case the war on terror and in Afghanistan hmm. um, and Iraq, that was happening in real time. Obviously wow. a show about MASH during Vietnam but was, you know, portraying hmm. Korea, although, you know, People assumed it was saying things about Vietnam, 
So I was really, you know, really proud of that show. Um, you know, I'm proud of each one. Um, and sometimes just as proud, if not more proud of ones I'm overseeing rather than creating, you know, mad dogs is still a show, you know, it's out of Amazon. Um, it only ran one season. Um, but I, you know, I really dig that show a lot and, and going down to Puerto Rico to, to film that, you know, it was really interesting and, um, exposed me to a part of the world I hadn't seen before. Um, I just get excited about these projects. Mm. You know, I get excited about a world and characters and, and I just want to write for them. Um, and, and when it doesn't work out, like there was a, a script that I oversaw that Ron Fitzgerald had written. He's one of the two showrunners behind this new Perry Mason series. That's about to come out on HBO now. Mm-hmm. He wrote the script called Badlands. Um, for HBO that I just thought was one of the best scripts I'd ever written, uh, ever read, including ones I've written. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was spectacular. And it was in 2012, 2013. And it completely illustrated and predicted um, the Trump era in terms of, you know, rural white America and the opioid crisis and, and declining, um, <clears throat> life expectancies and everything. Um, and it was so beautiful and we could just not get HBO in my opinion to get outside their LA, New York bubble mm-hmm. um, and get behind this show that, you know, that took place in Montana. Um, and I, I just think of the lost opportunity there, uh, what that show would have said and what it would have predicted and what it would have illustrated, you know, in that 2013 to 2016 period Mm. as the Trump phenomenon, um, you know, was building and then happening, I think would have been amazing, would have, um, made HBO proud, but we never got the opportunity to make that. So like, that's one on the bad side that like, I still to this day just go, Oh my God, like it was so good. Hmm. We're going to take a break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back to talk about timeless. DrivingFootage.com provides 4K nine-angle driving plates for film and television. Over 14,000 clips are available for locations all around Southern California, with more areas coming soon. A fully equipped camera car with height-adjustable rig is available for custom shoots and second-unit photography. Visit DrivingFootage.com for details. AVGearGuy.com provides computer and gear rentals serving the LA area, including laptops with final draft, as low as $9 a day with long booking rates available. They also scan photos, documents, video and audio tapes, and film reels to digital so you can easily share with your friends and family. Mention the name of the TV Writer Podcast and you will get 10% off your order. Visit AVGearGuy.com for details. Full disclosure, I do own both of these companies. By supporting them, you help me bring new in-person video interviews to you. And we're back to talk about Timeless. Um, Why don't you park a little bit about on Timeless? Because this was a project that was a little different than um, some of the other ones that you had done. Uh, Can you tell me about what it was like to to create that show and and to run that show? Well, I give all the credit to Eric Kripke, my co-creator on the show. I'd heard the name Eric Kripke. I'd never met Eric Kripke. And um, I can't remember now whether it was an email or a phone call, but essentially Eric cold called me or cold emailed me Mm. 
mm. because he had an idea, he had just a nugget of a show that he wanted to do, but um, but having you know had the bruises of being like the show sole showrunner on um, his previous show. Um, he was looking for someone to partner up with and someone just, and he had a deal at Sony where I'm located and somebody had shown him a roster of, you know, um, other showrunner writers that were under deals with Sony. And, and for some reason he decided, Oh, Sean Ryan. And we didn't know each other, but he cold called me or cold emailed me and was like, Hey, I've got a pitch for an idea and I'd love to pitch to you. And I, I thought it was really strange at the time because we get writers approaching, but usually they're writers who have not, created their own show. Eric had certainly had a lot of success mm-hmm. and I was a little mystified. Like why he doesn't need me to do something. So why, so what is that all about? It's strange. And so he, um, he came in and he said, I have this idea and you know, but I really don't want to do it alone. I want to do it with someone. And, and at the end of that, I said, well, listen, you know, the nugget of an idea kind of intrigues me. I'm what I like is that, you know, I grew up on sci-fi stuff and all and and shows like Quantum Leap and mm-hmm. movies like The Future and I love it, but I'm known as the cop guy and you know the stuff and 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 so I love the opportunity to use Eric's sort of credentials in that world to insert myself into that world. Yeah. But, but I said, but you know, you're so successful without me. Um, and I don't know how I'm used to getting my way. You're used to getting your way. I don't know how that would work. I said, so why don't we do this? Why don't we just commit to a week? You and I get into a writer's room by ourselves for a week. Mm-hmm. Let's see where we can take this story. And more importantly, let's see whether we can work together or not. And so we did that. And, and we broke the pilot episode of timeless together and, we ended up liking each other and working well with each other. At the end of it, we were like, yeah, this works. Let's do wow. this. So, um, so he, he's been just a tremendous partner for me. Um, I've learned a ton from him. He and I are different in the way that we approach show running. And, and I'd like to think that um, I taught him a few things and I know that he taught me a few things and it was just always a sort of best idea wins. Hmm. Um, and you know, we knew that if, but also one person could sort of veto anything. Right. So, so we had to get the scripts to a place where both he and I were happy Mm. and forging, you know, that, you know, threading that needle usually led to good scripts. Um, and then, and then we found other ways to divide things. So he would oversee all the visual effects. I would oversee the music. Um, I would do the early uh, editing work and then sort of present what I had to him. And then, you know, he would weigh in and sort of do his notes. He did a little bit more sort of story time in the writer's room um, than I did. And so we found a way to divide up the work and, um, you know, and and that's uh, what we did. So, you know, I I loved the idea um, of using Timeless as a show to explore history. Hmm a history buff. I always like to read books um, about things. I'm especially interested in sort of forgotten history and, you know, not just World War II, but, you know, hmm. uh, and um, there was a book that we sort of read that liked, I think it was called The People's History, that, that sort of focused on the people who don't usually get the headlines and things. And, and, 
And so while we did do some episodes with like Abraham Lincoln and stuff, um, my favorites were probably the ones where we introduced the audience to people who we thought should be significant historically, mm-hmm. but, but for various reasons weren't. And a lot of times those were people that were, you know, historically marginalized, whether it was women or people of color and everything. And, and so, uh, the, you know, I've never had an experience like Timeless. I've had shows that were successful. I've had shows that weren't as successful. I've never had a show that had a fan base that mm-hmm. was as rabid and loyal and just outright amazing as the Timeless fan base was. We, you know, we were a show that got canceled after season one, and literally the fans rose up to the point that Bob Greenblatt reconsidered his decision and Jen Salky reconsidered her decision. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and 48 hours later, we were picked up for a second season. We got canceled again after the second season, and the fans just did not want the story to end there. Wow. And, and you know, there's a narrative that, oh, well, f- fan voices, you know, that's stuff that Hollywood people whip up, but it doesn't really mean anything to the bean counters. I swear to you that, that fan enthusiasm for this show literally got us a pickup from season one to season two. And then at the end of season two, when we got canceled again, really guilted the NBC leadership into allowing us to make a two hour movie. That two hour movie was not a money making situation for the network or the studio. I think, I think everyone sort of broke even on it, but they felt an obligation Hmm. to passionate fans to allow us to tell some sort of conclusion of the story, which I think we have now. Does that mean that timeless, is over forever. I don't think it does. I think these fans, I think there's only gonna, I think the size of the fandom is only going to grow. Mm. I think absence is going to make the heart seem fonder. Um, I think in this world, um, in which more and more programming is becoming sort of niche for certain audiences, it would not surprise me if in a year or three years or something, there's going to be an appetite to, you know, revive the timeless world in some way. And, and, you know, and my understanding is that, you know, the actors like, you know, Abby and, and Matt and Malcolm and Claudia and company, um, I think they'd all be down for it. So mm. I, I never want to overpromise to the fans and I never want to, you know, say, Oh, this is going to happen and that not happen. But I've seen timeless be resurrected twice before. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a possibility that, whether it's in a series of sort of two or four hour bursts of, you know, little sort of special movies or whether it's some short season or something and where it would be, I don't know. Or Probably not. streaming networks. I mean, they, they've picked Maybe. up shows. You know, I think if, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if Timeless, I got to find out if Timeless is streaming somewhere specifically right now, but, you know, but it's the kind of show that I think would binge well and, and it just takes one place to say, oh, we'd like to, you know, because I think that would draw a lot of traffic to mm-hmm. you know, whether it was a Peacock network thing or an HBO Max or something. I think if you said, hey, we have all the episodes of Timeless and now here's the two hour movie or the or the four separate hours mm-hmm. three years later, I think it would draw a lot of traffic. So maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but but I've I've seen Timeless be resurrected twice and it wouldn't shock me to see it happen again. Yeah. Very, very cool. Well, we're getting uh, fairly close to the end of our time here. Um, maybe just a couple of general questions. So how do you feel about um, P 
peak TV and the sort of the current landscape? And how does that affect um, your development of shows? Some things are easier, some things are harder. There's a shortage of good line producers um, because the business has expanded so much. So that puts a lot of pressure on productions. Um, there's issues with crews and, and, and a shortage of good crews in certain cities, you know, a lot of these tax rebate cities. You know, we had a lot of issues in Vancouver where I think we were one of like 53 productions, uh, season one of Timeless, happening in Vancouver. Um, and when you're late in, you know, you're losing people every week to other shows. It was really difficult um, in ways that you look and you go, well, did we even really save money being in this tax rebate place mm -hmm. because of all the extra things we have to do? That's hard. I, my biggest worry is that TV has been so successful for the last 20 years, let's call it, starting with like The Sopranos, creatively and everything. And you've seen a decline, in my opinion, not in individual movies, but the movie industry as a whole. And what I'm seeing now is that the TV industry is starting to be populated with a lot of movie people, and they're starting to adopt a lot of the movie tactics that, to me, actually ruins the movie business. Mm. And, I, you know... Everything's sort of star-driven. The old mantra in TV used to be the TV made stars. Mm. But what we're seeing now more and more is that, yes, there's more places to sell the stuff, but you've got to have Brad Pitt starring in your show. Uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have shows like that. If Brad Pitt wants to star in a show or a limited series, that's great. But, um, but I'm seeing less of an appetite because the networks feel, and maybe they're right, but, you know, but I would – provide evidence to the contrary that they need these stars to be noticed in a 500 channel universe. Mm -hmm. um, but when I look at the things that, you know, that, that we look at as, as creative, critical, um, and commercial hits, when I look at a show like breaking bad, you know, you had a sitcom actor and Brian Cranston, you know, playing a drug dealer that, mm -hmm. that wasn't star driven. That was, you know, a really great story, really well told. Mad Men, you know, was a Matthew Weiner creation. John Hamm had been doing guest star episodes of The Unit for us, mm -hmm. right, before doing Mad Men. Um, so I worry that, you know, to me, these are the shows that, that really resonate with people, and yet, and yet it feels like a lot of the things that wreck the film industry are starting to worm their way into the television industry. And it, and it concerns me. Mm. Well, we're almost at the end of our time. Um, what would you say, uh, if, uh, advice to younger writers, advice to people who are breaking in, um, what would you say are the maybe mistakes you see people making or the things that you would like to see? And people you interview. Yeah. yeah, there's a story I tell that people generally like. I'll tell here. So I apologize if people have heard me say this before. Um, so if you go back to the beginning of this program, I talked about how I had this initial success, won this award and everything. And then I spent a few years writing stuff and not getting hired. And, and, and I was starting to now get to be in my late 20s, which was less cute. Um to not have made it than it was when I was 23. And I got concerned and I went to my manager and I said, listen, I think these scripts I'm writing are really good, but clearly they're not getting me work. And so will you do me a favor? Will you give me a script of another client of yours 
um, where that script is getting that writer offers. And I'd like to read it because I'd like to figure out what, you know, what I'm missing essentially. And he gave me an X-Files script that Tim Minear had written and that had gotten Tim a lot of offers on shows. And I read it. And what I realized were, was that the high points of that script weren't necessarily a lot better than the high points of my script, but every single word worked. There was attention to detail to every single page, every single line. It was just more consistent mm. than what I had. And I said, okay, I see now. I have assumed that my writing was better than it is. That's the problem. The problem isn't the outside world. The problem is me. I, I said, from now on, I'm not going to turn a script in till I know that is the absolute best thing I can possibly write. I've, I've been settling. Hmm. I'm stopping saying this is good enough. You know, a B plus is good enough. It needs to be an A. And the next two scripts I wrote, one was a Larry Sanders spec script, one was a NYPD Blue spec script. I, I, I put that mantra into being, I just was like, I'm going to be my toughest critic when I, I'm going to put it down for a week. When I look, I'm going to say, what would my biggest enemy say about the script? What would they pick apart? And then I'm going to fix those things so that there's nothing for anyone to pick apart. And those two scripts are what got me all my paying jobs for the next couple of years and got me my first staff job. So what I would say is if you're not in the position you want to be in, don't blame the town. Don't blame the industry. Say my writing isn't good enough right now. Mm. And I've got to and and I've got to be better at it. And I've got to, you know, I've got to get it from a B plus to an A. That would be my advice. Because that is something you can control. You can't control whether some executive at NBC is going to like your script or not. Hmm. You can't control the circumstances under which they read it. You can just power to make sure that it is the absolute best work you can do and, and have a real assessment of your talent. Do you have the talent to do this? And if so, then exercise that talent. If not, maybe change the genres. Maybe I'm not an action adventure writer. Hmm. Maybe I need to be more of a relationship writer. You know, so find the niche that's going to work for you um, and then just be the best you can be at it. And, and you know, the town is tough, but but the minute I stopped feeling sorry for myself and the minute I took responsibility and said whether I get hired will depend on me and how good the script is, that's when everything happened for me. So that's the advice I'd give. Very cool. Well, that is a great place to end up. And I really, really appreciate all the time you've taken here. I know you've got an appointment to get to just in just a second. Uh, I think people are going to love this interview. Oh, well, uh, great questions. I enjoyed the talk. Sorry if I dominate it. I get excited when I talk about things. So uh, <laughs> sorry if you didn't get all the questions you wanted. But, uh, you know, down the line, if there's more things you want to ask, be happy to come back. So, so thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, John. Make sure to subscribe on all of the places you can find this podcast. YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and also make sure to rate the podcast and, and submit your comments. Please do follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle, and also visit tvwriterpodcast.com slash support for details on how you can become a patron of this podcast for as little as 25 cents per episode. Well, that's it for this week. I appreciate you joining me. See you next time. Bye-bye.